0: So welcome, everyone, to the VoxBox in the European Parliament here uh, in Brussels. Uh, This is an EPP Group talk on Russia, Ukraine, the UK, the EU, the Brexit effect. What has been the post-Brexit UK foreign policy uh, regarding uh, Russia? Is it stronger or weaker? How does that factor into this Ukraine conflict right now? What's been the UK policy towards Russia. Uh, joining us to talk about this uh, is Edward Lucas, uh, author of The New Cold War. Uh, you are, uh, were you, former editor of The Economist uh, when you were based uh, in Moscow. Um, you got lots of stories about that. See how much we can pack that in. Uh, Andrus Kobilius, uh, Lithuanian uh, member of the European Parliament, uh, chairman of the delegation to the Euronest Parliamentary Assembly that includes uh, uh, some former Soviet-bloc countries, actually. Uh, other uh, committees, including foreign affairs, delegations to Ukraine, Russia parliaments. Your former prime minister of Lithuania. You face down the soil. Twice. Twice. Thank you. <laughs> I stand corrected. Uh, and Sean Kelly. Sean Kelly from Ireland, EPP Group vice chair, uh, delegation to the EU-UK Parliamentary Partnership Assembly... Uh, That was established after Brexit, right? Yes. Uh, So, uh, very important to get your uh, your take on on how things uh, how Brexit affected uh, UK policy uh, on uh, Russia. Let's start with uh, let's start with uh, uh, Edward uh, about Brexit in general. Did that and and regarding this Ukraine Ukraine war, did it did Brexit encourage
1: Putin uh, to invade Ukraine? I think that Brexit contributed to the idea that the West was divided. Uh, That certainly didn't help. I suspect that Putin's decision to invade Ukraine was based on his calculations about what the West generally would do and what was going to happen inside Ukraine and how well the Russian armed forces are going to perform. Mm. And he was wrong on all of those. And I still say we were right and Putin was wrong, but unfortunately it didn't stop him going ahead with the war. I think that The immediate effect of Brexit was to cast a bit of a a light on Russian interference in the British political system because there were some big questions about whether Russia had somehow intervened to finance the anti-EU, the the Leave campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, There was also a very big deal around Boris Johnson, who seemed to be very soft on the Putin regime. I was the first witness to our Intelligence and Security Committee report on Russian interference in Britain, right? And I gave a detailed account of what I'd seen over the last 30 years And although the committee's report was excellent Boris Johnson didn't act on it and in fact tried to squash the report and disband the committee
0: Though we have to say
1: that, that Boris Johnson went to Kiev. Keith he, he then had a road to Damascus conversion. He went from being <laughs> yeah. um, someone who we were deeply skeptical about because yeah. of his friendship with certain Russians in London and his seemingly unwillingness to, to see the danger of the Putin regime. But once the war started, yes, hats off to him. Right. He's done a fantastic job in focusing um, British aid to Ukraine, both military and financial. He's also played an important role in Washington, D.C., where he's very popular among the Republican Party yeah. in making sure they don't go squishy on Ukraine.
0: Well, so that's, that's you know, that interests me too. I mean, as far as the politics, as far as the, the parliamentarians that, that you deal with, Sean, uh, in the U.K., Uh, How much did Brexit affect the UK's policy
2: toward Ukraine that you saw? Not all poil, I would think. In the sense that Brexit happened, and I agree it gave the impression that Europe was weak. But looking at that impression, many more had that impression as well. And if you ask people before... Russia invaded Ukraine. Would the European Union take in millions of Ukrainian refugees and welcome them with open arms? They'd say probably not. Probably not. Even taking my own country, we took in, we were asked to take in, and we took in about 4,000 to the previous refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. And they were tolerated, let's say. Now we have taken in almost 100,000. If you said to anybody, before Russia invaded Ukraine, that Ireland would openly welcome 100,000 refugees, they'd say, no way. So in that sense, Putin wasn't alone in his calculations. What actually transpired subsequently was Europe saw the horror of what Putin did, and they put their differences aside and said, we must stop this and do everything we can to stop it. And that, Mm -hmm. thankfully, unity is still continuing Brexit or no Brexit.
0: So that, I think it's more, I guess, as both of you were kind of indicating, is that there was a lot of division uh, from Brexit between the UK and the EU, and that kind of gave that impression of weakness, and after that, then uh, the, the invasion of, the Ucr- of Ukraine actually galvanized the unity uh, in, in the West overall. Right, Andres.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I agree, you know, that uh, really Brexit was some kind of, you know, Definitely. It created the feeling that Europe is somewhere in a very critical situation, you know. It's falling apart. Yeah, falling apart. Uh, Britain is leaving, you know. Yeah. Europe is, is, you know, becoming weaker, smaller, and so on. In addition to that, I would mention that always, at least in the Baltic states, we were considering, you know, that Great Britain is very strong on security issues, despite uh, whatever prime minister, you know, is coming. Sure. Very strong on transatlantic relations. And, you know, I can imagine that maybe Putin started to calculate, okay, Britain left, you know, European Union, so it means that, you know, Europe will be much more weaker in all those, you know, issues. And that is perhaps was, you know, created some kind of temptation for him to, to also to try to test Europe. Of course, he totally, you know, of course that was, you know, uh, totally wrong, wrong uh, forecast uh, what he did before the war, both about EU and both about, you know, Ukrainian uh, defense capabilities. Mm. And, and really, you know, Europe showed quite, quite strong, you know, capabilities, which we were not expecting that Europe you know, has such a capability. Now, really, you know, uh, Great Britain also showed some kind of, you know, strong leadership. But still, for me, it's a pity that, you know, if, you're, if Britain would be inside of EU, mm. I think that, you know, EU would be stronger in delivering, you know, much more of what was needed for Ukraine. Yeah, together, together.
0: Uh, um, Edward is with Brexit. Though, do you do you think that the the UK response could have been even stronger if there weren't Brexit?
1: The response to the Ukraine invasion. Well, I think that most of what matters from the military point of view is inside NATO, and that if anything, Britain has done rather more in mm. NATO since Brexit, mm. and it's. We've have also things like the Joint Expeditionary Force, which is a British-led 10-country um, expeditionary framework right. for the Nordic Baltic area.
0: Yeah, they do exercises in the East, Eastern and, Europe. And, right.
1: I, and it's, the idea is it's sort of coalition of the capable and the willing and the threat aware. And I think that, that post-Brexit, the government's been very keen to show that it's still engaged in European security. Mm. And perhaps we've done a bit more than we might have done otherwise on the sanctions. I think that the European Union did a very good job on sanctions. I'm not sure it would have been any tougher if Britain had been in. It seemed to be there was a big consensus behind it. Britain's own role was quite um, robust as well. Mm. What I'm missing is serious sanctions on the enablers—the bankers and lawyers and accountants and PR people, yeah. fixers and grifters. People still talk about London Grad. Right. of. I mean, right? L- London is is the sort of open sewer when it comes to this. But one could also point to places like Vienna, where it's not safe to be a Russian opposition journalist mm-hmm. dealing with the um, investigating the Russian regime. My friend Crystal Grozev from Bellingcat had to leave Vienna because his life's in danger living there. Uh-huh. <coughs> so there's, there's, there's plenty of room for going after the. Um, the kind of the, the cast, the supporting cast of characters right. who launder money and peddle influence. And I think Britain could have done more. But I think Europe could have done more too. And I very much hope now that as we um, look for more things to do to try and cripple the Putin war machine and the Putin lie machine and yeah. to support Ukraine, that we'll go after the enablers as well. Yeah, do you think,
0: I mean, uh, uh, Jean, do you think <laughs> the, the sanctions could have been stronger Without, you know, had Brexit not happened, you think the sanctions could have been uh, put put more pressure on, on on Moscow?
2: I think what has happened is, number one, the Ukraine, particularly their army, has overperformed, and sanctions have underperformed mm. because people didn't expect the Ukrainian army to be so strong and resilient, and they are, and very brave, but we were led to believe, I think that for maybe the first time ever, this was going to be a war fought in two fronts, militarily and sanctions. Yeah. The sanctions haven't worked as well as they should have, and they need to be re-looked at, and we need information, up-to-date information, on where they're working, where they're not working, who's actually abiding by them, and who's cheating mm-hmm. by getting ways around them. And I think now is the time, particularly because this is going to be a crucial year, that we sit down and we look at how effective sanctions can be, and we look at extending sanctions as well to many individuals in particular who are part of Putin's uh, General war Cabinet, if you want to put that way, over mm. the years. And I think that is crucial. And I think the United Kingdom, particularly now if you get over the issues in relation to Northern Ireland, right. and the Windsor Agreement <coughs> passes, <laughs> yeah. then there's a huge opportunity for the EU and the UK, come together on sanctions, especially.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm. Uh, that, that was one of my questions uh, up ahead uh, about that Windsor Framework, the, the, the agreement on Northern Ireland, that that perhaps that could mend the relations, so that there is more more unity on on, on foreign policy. That uh, in, in a strange way, the do you think that, that this this came about, Andres, because of the Ukraine conflict? That they buried the, the UK and the EU buried the hatchet when it came to Northern Ireland
3: to move well, ahead. Uh, at least you know, I can say that it's it's really good development. I don't know how much you know the war uh, convinced you know, both sides uh, you know in negotiations on 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 the Windsor you know agreement. But in any case, you know, of course, uh, if that was creating some kind of uh, tensions in between of EU and uh, and Great Britain, it's good that it's resolved. Because mm. really, Great Britain is playing uh, a huge role, you know. And uh, I am again, it's pity that, uh, you know, Great Britain left us, you know, because inside of you, they were doing a lot of, you know, very important, you know, influences. Right. Uh, now, of course, they are showing an example, uh, but, you know, uh, some some EU member states are not very keen to follow good examples. They need to be convinced yeah. and I remember very well, you know uh, I, I remember and I'm quoting and quoting last year data which were published by Politico somewhere in October okay. because the data are perhaps now different, but at that time the data on, uh, on how much weapons were provided by you know Great Britain EU and United States was very clear. U.S. provided 25 billion euros value of weapons at the time. Great Britain provided 4 billion and the whole European Union 5.6, 5.6 you know, uh, billion uh, euros value. So it means that Great Britain was almost providing the same amount what the whole European Union was providing. Yeah. So to have such a you know, power inside of the EU and to convince Germans, you know, and to convince France to follow you know, British example, that would be a great achievement. Now, we, we lack that, you know. Yes. Right,
1: but I, right. I, th- I think, to me, the point about the Windsor Agreement is not just that it undoes some of the completely stupid damage to the political process in Northern Ireland and to British relations with the EU and so on. Right. It's, it, what it really shows is that the taboo is over for the Conservative Party, that for the, ever since Brexit we've had this idea that the EU is kind of the enemy. We need to be very tough. Yeah. Um, they're out to get us. Any concession is a sign of weakness, mm. and the patriotic British thing to do is to be as tough as possible right. with the European Union on all fronts. Yeah. Now, as a but now there's a bigger enemy. Well, I think well, I think, exactly, well, I think there's, there's two things happen. One is that this this has run out of road in, yeah. in terms of Britain. Um, that there's no real mileage for mm. the Conservative Party. Obviously, I'm a Lib Dem politician, I'm on the opposition, and I've okay. lamented this all the time. But I think what's also clear is that, in, that Europe realises that it's strategically naked without the United States. And this has been a huge wake-up call, the idea right. that you have a serious war happening on the borders of the European Union, and that we, are, we Europeans are, are pathetically dependent on the United States
0: as a security guarantor. there's a desire to fix that, though. We need to
1: fix it, but it's going to be a long, long time in the fixing. And in the meantime, um, you can't necessarily rely on the United States being there all the time, because we might get another President Trump or something else. And then you look round, you think, can Germans be the linchpin of European security? Mm. Not really. Mm. the French? Not really. And so that is a real opportunity for, for Britain. So I think that this lays the foundation for a kind of grand bargain, where Britain will get closer to Europe on... Hmm. in in economic terms and regain quite a lot of what we so foolishly gave up with Brexit. And in return, um, Britain will offer a lot more on defence and security. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, Uh, but at least the possibility is now
0: there. Well, I mean, we saw the Samaloo agreement, right, in the the 1990s. So there was, you know, laying the groundwork for that. And and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Sean, I know you have to leave pretty soon, early. So we want to give you a little bit quick more time here. Uh, Let me throw a hand grenade in here. Uh, Something in the Daily Express. Okay, so you already know the ethos. Uh, Quotes the think tank, the Center for Brexit Policy, saying that Ukraine was saved thanks to Brexit giving a freer hand to the UK without the uh, common security and foreign policy. It gave them a freer hand. What do you think, Sean?
2: Nonsense. (laughs) All right. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. They had a free hand to do what they wanted to do in relation to Ukraine. I think, in fairness, even Boris Johnson, who has been most inconsistent, particularly in his approach to Brexit, reflected, I think, what the British wanted and gave Ukraine as much help as possible. As Andrews was saying, gave almost as much as Europe. That had nothing really to do with Brexit. It had to do with their own foreign policy. And he's right. If they were within the European Union, there would be more help coming from uh, the European Union initially, particularly, and they were always, and this is the big loss for we're concerned, Mm. and the Irish see this more than anyone, they were a big loss in countering the power of Germany and France. That's gone now. So that's a big loss, and if they were here, I have no doubt about it, that there would have been a better response, particularly militarily, from Mm. Germany, and maybe other countries as well, at the outset. Now Ah. it's changing, thankfully, but I think, in fairness, the UK with or without Brexit would have done what it did anyway.
1: It's impossible to sign any single element of our policy towards Ukraine, which would have been impossible had we stayed in the EU. Everything we've done, we could have done in the EU, in terms of giving weapons, in terms of sanctions, you know, we see within the European Union, there's all sorts of countries that do things that are much tougher. Uh, you know, the Baltic states have been far tougher than the EU average. There's right. plenty of scope to be tougher. Uh, so, this is just nonsense. It's part of this whole yeah. Brexit, <laughs> Brexit lie machine, which has, <laughs> I think, finally um, reached the point that nobody's believing these things anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, okay. I, 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 I do. Sorry, go on.
0: Yeah, well, Andres, what, what, what's your take on that? I mean, do you, do you think that w- without Brexit, the EU might have been, and some EU members might have
3: been emboldened, as, as you guys say, to act stronger. Absolutely. I'm from the, from the, the beginning. That, you know. What does it mean, common uh, foreign and security policy of EU? It's uh, you know, <laughs> difficult to, <laughs> to describe. Yeah. It's quite limited, you know, in, in, in the scope. Yeah, because and national governments
0: do their own thing yeah, too, and, right?
3: And, you yeah. know, and inside of EU have uh, different countries with different, you know, support towards uh, Ukraine, you know, how much, you know, Estonia or, or, or some other countries were you know, mm. spending of their military budget, you know, to, to, to uh, Ukraine. It, it was not influenced by the you know. Yeah. So that's, that's clear. Uh, second is that, you know, really, why we are missing, uh, you know, uh, Great Britain. Again, I can repeat. I think that, you know, still we're learning the lessons why, you know, we are in face of this geopolitical crisis. We need to understand what was wrong in our decisions before, but also we need to design new decisions, new policy instruments, new strategic attitude. I was, you know, yesterday we had a nice, nice uh, discussion with Ukrainians and and also experts on defense industries and so on and so on. I said, look, we're still, you know, we're still using only those instruments of European Union Mm -hmm. during the war, which were established during the peacetime. Like peace facility, you know, uh, uh, some other instruments, and so on and so on. We need to move forward you now, right? And, and that is where British, you know, leadership, British experience, you know, would be very much needed. Yeah, yeah, it,
0: it would have reinforced, right? Um, yes, Edward, did you want to add something to that point before no, I go I, mean, to I, else? I
1: think we've we've got a con- consensus here that that yeah. the European foreign policy, it wasn't a break, um, but it would have been, I think, stronger and sharper. If we'd had Britain in, not least because of the enormous amount of energy and time mm. that we wasted on Brexit. I mean, every one of those meetings involved people who could have been working on other things. That's true. And I yeah. think that we we missed a trick with re- taking advantage of what was going on in Ukraine post-Maidan. You know, we could have already worked harder on the integration, and Andreas knows more about this than, than anybody. Um, yeah. that there was tr- opportunities to build Ukrainian infrastructure, improve connectivity, mm. um, capacity building in institutions, all these things that would have made them even better able to resist the Russian attack and an even more intimidating target, perhaps, for Putin. Right. So we've... I, right. And, and I think one of the things I'm missing in all of this mm. is any sense of contrition. You know, we. You This is the most monumental um, geopolitical... Uh, Error in our state. correct. Yeah. Well, no, no. The, the, the entire European policy towards Russia since nineteen ninety-one oh, okay. has, in the words of the EU, been a monument of the FT, been a monumental error, and there is very few people anywhere in Western Europe who are putting their hands up and saying, "Yes, we got it wrong." People like Andreas and his colleagues in Latvia and Estonia have been warning us for years and years Mm. about this. And the warnings were not just ignored, the people who delivered the warnings were patronised and belittled. And in all of Europe, only one head of government, Sana Marin from Finland, has Mm. actually had the courage to say, you know what, you guys warned us, we were wrong. And I think that's that's stunning. And until we, in particularly the countries of the Old West, the big, rich countries of the western half of Europe, mm. until they're willing to face up to the terrible results of their greed, arrogance, ignorance and naivete towards the Kremlin, I don't think we're going to get our policy right.
0: Um, Andrew, so yeah, I mean, you, 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 you the Baltic countries have been wor- worried about and warning about uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, for instance, right?
3: Yeah, so, well, warning we kind of, well, you know, cutting cover pipelines, which we had with Gazprom before, you know, in 2008. Right. One of my, you know, government strategic agenda issues besides fighting uh, financial crisis was, of course, to get rid of Gazprom monopoly. And we understood very well how much, you know, being so heavily dependent on Gazprom, you are becoming, you know, weak and, and, and really and, uh, you know, possibilities for also hybrid interferences uh, by Kremlin is, is becoming uh, very big ones. Second, of course, we saw very clearly that to leave Ukraine in some kind of gray zone, not giving, uh, i know, I will not speak even about Bucharest summit, you know, which uh, NATO summit, which was Mm -hmm. a big mistake, Mm -hmm. but even not giving clear membership perspective, you know, on EU was big mistake. And that was, you know, that was how this temptation for Putin was created, you know. Right. Uh, Do you you
0: think that could have been different
3: had there not been Brexit though, that that kind of policy? Uh, Well, uh, you know, I would, yeah. If if Britain would be you know, inside of you, I think that this geopolitical thinking would be much more available for all the Europeans. Yeah. You know. and we've in always
1: been in favour of widening. As I mean, we we put widening ahead of deepening. Right. Some of the other old West puts uh, prefers deepening to widening. Yeah. So I think we would have backpedalled a bit on things like the mm. um, you know, some some elements of, uh, of of common economic and other policies, and we would have um, pushed a bit harder on. Get, getting a membership perspective for Ukraine—that's that would have been a very strong British policy if we hadn't made this disastrous wrong turn in 2016. Right, right. Okay. Um, let me ask another thing about uh,
0: disinformation, because uh, there are those who—well, uh, there was evidence that disinf- Russian uh, disinformation uh, helped to uh, encourage Brexit. Right. Um, how is Russian disinformation now affecting UK politics?
1: Well, I'm cautious. It's it's too easy to blame it on Russia. You know, nobody made... It wasn't Russian disinformation that made David Cameron call the stupid referendum. It wasn't Russian disinformation that made him no. come up with this pretend renegotiation. Rene- it wasn't Russian disinformation that made the Remain campaign be run really, really stupidly. And so, I think it, there may have been an element of this, but it's too—it's okay. too easy to blame it. If we'd done everything else, done other things right, right, this wouldn't have made a difference. I think that the the big um, thrust of Russian disinformation is spreading cynicism, this fud, as the Americans call it—fear, uncertainty, and doubt—and cool. we've seen that whether it's on the migration crisis, on, whether it was on the aftermath of the financial crisis, whether it's on COVID, where there was a lot of Russian. Disinformation, mm-hmm. so it's there. I think that we are now waking up to it a bit. I think that the sort of the the, the golden age for Russian disinformation is is over because people have begun to realize yes, this is going on. This is a thing. Even right. the Germans, who used to laugh when we told them, "Watch out for Russian disinformation," they now, yeah. now <laughs> admit they know. it's happening.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> um, let's look forward a little bit. These last few minutes. Let's 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 uh, look at how. Now that we have this Windsor uh, agreement uh, regarding uh, Northern Ireland, what is the future of uh, EU-UK relations uh, regarding uh, Ukraine? Do you think there could be more common action, especially in terms of sanctions? What hopes do you have, Andres?
3: Well, you know... uh I would say absolutely, you know, we, we, we are looking how to, how to increase, you know, relationship in, in all the different areas. I can say, you know, for a simple example, when the war started at the same, on the same day, I initiated, you know, creation of a special parliamentarian network, you know, mm-hmm. uh, United for Ukraine. Now it's really, it's quite an active organization. Recently, we have been to, Berl- to, to Kiev with, with a delegation. And I was very happy to have, you know, somebody from from British Parliament, mm. chairwoman of, you know, Foreign Relations Committee, and so on and so on. And and their voice, their, you know, position was very important for all others. So I mean, where we can, you know, how we can use our our relationship, how we can use our cooperation on sanctions. Absolutely, I agree on sanctions, on military deliveries, on on, you know, on on development of military industry capabilities mm-hmm. know, to deliver. So. Everything is is very much needed, you know. And uh, and here again and again, you know, I feel some kind of nostalgia, you know, <laughs> uh, that you know, really, what I see is still missing in, uh, you know, uh, here in, in 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 European Union, in, in Brussels and around. Really, some kind of clear leadership. I don't want to blame anybody too much, you know, but mm. uh, I mm. feel that there is shortage of that, you know, still we are not overcoming uh, in some ways the shock of, you know, which perhaps some capitals in, <laughs> in, 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 in the West, you know, faced with that, you know, war when they were, you know, calling uh, Putin each, each day, you know, and, and, and this, you know, language of dialogue with Putin was so uh-huh. popular. Right. Suddenly it, it became, you know, totally you know, clear that that was nonsense. No, yeah, it wasn't working. So, and I see still some kind of this lack of, of you know, geopolitical leadership. Yes. And, uh, and that is where Great Britain perhaps can be, you know, really yeah. very, very important and very, very influential. Yeah.
1: No, I, I think there's still a stunning lack of urgency. Just in the period we've been talking, probably one or two Ukrainians will have been killed and three, four, five, six will have suffered traumatic, life-changing injuries and we don't smell the smell of battle here and there's certainly room for more urgency and a more decisive approach. I think where I would be particularly keen to see more British EU cooperation would be in getting the message across outside the sort of traditional West. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really disappointing to see big democracies like Brazil, India, Indonesia, Nigeria, South Africa, not seeing this as an uh, resistance to an imperialist war, but seeing it as some kind of East-West conflict where the Western proxy is getting a kicking. They sort of see yeah. it as if it was a bit like Afghanistan. And I think that we have a you know, the EU with its enormous development and diplomatic footprint and Britain with its historical ties um, dating from our, the era of our own empire. I think we could really do a much better job in helping the Ukrainians to tell their story in the so-called global south. And that would be a tremendous project for us both to work. What
0: about, what about further coordinating uh, both economic and military aid? In
1: the, you know, right well, now we're
0: uh, facing challenges about uh, providing the even main, enough
1: ammunition. The, right? the, main cha- the main channel for that is NATO. And, yeah. and, and, and the Americans are doing the heavy lifting. I think sanctions, as I mentioned earlier, on the enablers, there's a whole bunch of people who are not scared and they should be scared. Mm. Um, and there's still more to do on some bits of the Russian connection with the energy market. Um, but I think that um, the, the key thing, as Andreas said, is leadership. And we are still... You know, President Zelensky... Is not just leader of Ukraine. He's almost the leader of the free world, and that's terrific. We admire very much what he's doing. But mm. um, yeah, we could mention the excellent leadership of Gaia Kalas in Estonia and Prime Minister Shimonite in Lithuania. And there's a um, very impressive new president of the Czech Republic. But it still looks like a bit of a leadership desert when you look around the uh-huh. um, m- most of the old West. And um, that's shaming, really. Okay. Uh- yeah, yeah, I
3: would I would say again on, on this leadership you know, question why I would like to see you know that uh, Great Britain would use its its leadership power to convince other Western partners especially big capitals not to be afraid of you know full Ukrainian victory against uh, Russian military absolutely. yes because that is what I see some countries are hesitating yeah to deliver enough of weapons because they are afraid. That you know, if Ukrainians will defeat Russians, so Russia will go into collapse, you no know, total disorder, there will be no control on nuclear weapons, and so on and so on. And this is totally wrong approach. And and, and British, you know, leadership could could say in a very simple way, uh-huh. let's do the job, you know. Yes, and right. that is opening opportunities possibly for positive changes in Russia. Right. No, yes. that's that's what what is. <laughs> Well, it's very much needed. I... I hope
1: you weren't looking for disagreement here, because I completely agree with Andreas on this, and I think Why? it's we need to get the discussion very firmly onto victory, what it means, and what we do after victory, both in terms of reconstruction of Ukraine and dealing with post-defeat and post-Putin Russia. This is something that Andreas has been working on with um, very powerful insights, right. and I think that there's still a, the, 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 the kind of the way we frame the question. In much of the old west is still comp- is, is very distorted and anachronistic we need to think much more clearly about where this is actually actually going and work on that and right. I'd, be, I'd be delighted if britain can contribute on that
0: so can we just conclude saying that can, can i conclude saying that uh that despite brexit uh europe and the uk the eu and the uk have uh have have been able to unify despite uh, despite Brexit, yes. been able to unify regarding Ukraine.
1: Yes, I think there's a big degree. I mean, I, I, I put it slightly differently. I think that the we've 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 it's almost like the balls reached the end, end of the elastic is coming back again. We've maxed yeah. out on the hopes of Brexit. Most of them have proved fruitless, and now on every front, whether you're talking about economic cooperation, cultural cooperation, scientific cooperation defense and security cooperation. The logical thing for Britain and Europe to do is to work more closely together. And I think that's going to be the story of the next 10 years. Obviously, Mm. I hope that it ends up with very close relations and that we eventually rejoin. Um, But even if we don't get that far, the trajectory to me is now clear. And I assume that's your hope as well,
0: Anderson? No,
3: I, well, I think that, you know, inside of you, we need to understand how important it is for us, you know, cooperation with, with, with Britain. And I hope that the same will happen in Britain. You know that they will understand yeah. how important it's, you know, for Britain. You know, cooperation with, with EU. Yeah,
0: I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you very much, Kettleman. Thank you. Me. Thank you. Me. Yes, Thanks thank you
3: to me. Edward, <laughs> to Andres,
0: and to Sean. Thanks to all of you for watching. Keep in mind at EPP Group uh, EU, uh, and uh, the website EPP Group EU. My name is Chris Burns. See you next time.